All right. Still talking remote. Uh, in another long line of teasers, we have another Bentley Heritage member on board today. Uh, we're going to be talking to Matt Drew from Bentley Heritage. He's their maltster. Him and I are at the Craft Malting Guild conference. You've actually been here all week doing God knows what in busy Bozeman, Montana. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's been great because the coldest part of the week was actually uh, every day that I was here <laughs> up until the day you got here. I bring the sunshine. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for that. So we'll get into Bentley, obviously, but let's let's start with your credentials and or lack thereof or lack thereof. <laughs> so so yeah, tell us, uh, tell listeners, nice. hello listener, <laughs> tell listener, kind of your start and how you got to Bentley. Sure. Actually kind of a, I'll give you the, I guess the short version going back 10 years. Uh, my professional background is in marketing and advertising and actually media as well. I was, uh, on air radio guy for about seven years. Yeah. I was going to say your voice is awful on radio. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, had moved to Las Vegas, uh, from Chicago it was kind of towards the end of my advertising agency days. I never knew it. Uh, but I was looking to get back to Pacific Northwest, where I'm originally from. And um, uh, Las Vegas was a good opportunity at the time. Uh, I, I wound up heading up the MGM Grand account for their agency of record and and uh, met my wife in the process of that. Uh, she was the director of marketing for the MGM Grand. I was her new account guy. So, you know, me being all about customer service, um, we're now married. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we, we decided we wanted to get a family started and didn't think that Vegas was really the place to do that. So, uh, we had an opportunity to move to North Texas and, and, uh, kind of start over there. I was doing some, uh, marketing consulting. And one of the things that kept coming up in, in meetings with my clients was there is no place around here to get a decent cup of coffee. And me coming from Washington state, I knew all about great coffee. So after about the 3,000th time here in that, I realized, well, maybe it's an opportunity for me to take advantage of a need that I'm seeing in this market and uh, start a, a specialty coffee brand. So I did that. And uh, So where'd you, where'd you get your beans from? Were you roasting them? So I, I actually had found, I did a little bit of research on, uh, on roasteries nearby. And, I, I mean, hope the, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the good news is at the time, the specialty coffee category was uh, starting to become more prevalent and, and people were becoming more aware of it, especially because that was such a, a rapidly growing market. People were moving there from all over the country. They were moving there from all over the country from places that had really good coffee scenes. And so there, there was more of a focus put on coffee and it was, it's definitely come a long way since then, but it was a great time for me because there were roasteries there to pick from. Uh, and, uh, I found one that was very open to having conversations about what kind of, uh, flavor profiles and roast profiles I was looking for and actually gave me the, the creative uh, ability to have that input on what I wanted my stuff to be. So I didn't have my own roastery, but I had the same amount of control over my product. And I carried that through my retail brand as well called Mojo Agogo. And, uh, um, 
it was a lot of fun. You know, I enjoyed it, and and it was uh, the the right thing at the right time for two reasons. First of all, it allowed me the opportunity to kind of flex my marketing uh, and advertising and branding muscles in a way that I could have ownership over it because it was my brand. But also uh, at the same time. Uh, it allowed me the opportunity to really sort of uh, uh, whet my appetite for the craft beverage category, which is something I've, I've been passionate about for, for years. Um, but in the course of, of building that business, I came in contact with uh, uh, Jonathan and Robert Licorice uh, from Iron Root Republic in Denison, Texas, and um, really uh, formed a really close relationship with them and still consider them actually extensions of my family to this day. It's That's a, it's, awesome. I yeah. didn't know you knew the. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I love the licorice family. Uh, you know, they, they took uh, myself, my wife, and my daughter in, and, and, and uh, we, we actually really miss them a lot to this day. That was the hardest thing about moving away from, from Texas at the time, aside from selling the business, was, uh, was saying, saying goodbye to them, not seeing them every day. But, uh, but they're the ones that really first turned me on to craft malt. I, I didn't really know what craft malt was all about at the time. And uh, one of the conversations I kept having with them was, hey, look, I, I want to be a part of the supply chain. I, this is what I want to do. I want to get involved. Um, I don't know that I necessarily want to be a distiller, but I'm, I love whiskey. I'm passionate about the category, and uh, I, I want to be a part of it, but I'm not sure what the best way to do that is. I'm not sure how best to move toward that goal. Uh, and above and beyond that, I don't exactly have an end goal in mind. And so, you know, we talked about it a lot over the course of, of a year. And uh, that was when they, they first were telling me about, you know, the, the craft malt supply chain or lack thereof. And that uh, there was a real strong need for that. And that's where I really started looking at malt. So um, uh, some things happened um, that required my wife and I to, to kind of reconsider where we were living. And, and uh, we picked up and moved. I sold the business uh, and we moved to Colorado, to Colorado Springs. And I kept the interest in, in the passion uh, for malting and I kept studying it. I, I, you know, it was one of those things where as I was feeling that I was getting closer to an understanding of what I wanted to do, uh, it was, it was, uh, really easy for me to kind of keep tapped into that and keep studying. Uh, so I did that. We, uh, we then, uh, just kind of out of the blue had an opportunity to move to, uh, to Reno for my wife's job. And so we wound up doing that. I picked the craft malt uh, concept back up and started running with it there, and uh, that's where I came in contact with Bentley. And, and uh, at the time, I had already signed up to go to the Canadian Malting Barley Technical Center in Winnipeg, Manitoba for their intensive craft malting course and had been studying malting. And, and uh, you know, my, my communication with Bentley at the time was, look, I, 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 I'm don't have a maltster's resume. I know you're looking for a maltster. Uh, I'm not a maltster yet by trade. I am, um, you know, if, uh, by, by passion and by interest, and I've been malting on small batches. Uh, I understand it, and this is what I want to do. So if the passion and the drive is enough for you to really uh, move forward with me as a potential candidate, I'd love to talk. And they got right back to me and said, yeah, let's get together. That's awesome. And so, yeah, and now it's uh, going on. Um, 
uh, well, not quite a year and a half. Uh, yeah, so I got I got together with Bentley and 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 told them, I know you're looking for a qualified maltster. Uh, I'm not the guy that that has that credential. I don't have the malting background, but I've got the passion for it. I've got the drive. This is what I want to do for the rest of my professional career. And uh, I feel like I'd be a great fit. So uh, if you want to get together and, and have a conversation, let's do it. And they said, okay, we'll talk. And then now it's, it's going on a year and a half that I've been there. I've been malting since March. Uh, we're just about ready to get our floor maltings uh, completed and start casting our first batches on the floor, which is really exciting. That's been uh, a, a work in progress for a long time. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about Johnny will eventually, as we keep teasing, Tell us what the distillery is. Let's talk about your side because Bentley Heritage is huge. I mean, you guys have, what, a thousand million acres or close to it? (laughs) Yeah, we're uh, just under 65,000 acres is our total footprint in the Carson Valley. Um, In terms of uh, active farming on that, um, I'm not exactly sure. I I think it's around 6,000 acres that we're actively farming. And But the idea is that everything that goes through the distillery – is a state, right? It's yeah. all homegrown. Yeah, that's right. And so we, we've got that estate designation. So uh, minimum 85% of everything that goes out the door to the consumer has to start on our land and never leave, essentially, throughout the entire process. So from what that means to me, uh, we've got five different barley cultivars that we're growing uh, that I'm playing around with. Oats, wheat, rye, triticale. Uh, corn been playing around with a bunch of different corn which has been fun and um has made me the source of many jokes at the <laughs> distillery <laughs> because they tell me that i have a corn addiction <laughs> and you know what mea culpa they're right i do you know i i uh, it's funny the first few months that i was there the the malting facility wasn't operational yet and so i had nothing to do but really research, you know, I I would talk with Johnny and and get a better understanding for his long-term goals and objectives specific to grains. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to get in his head to understand what he wanted to make. And and in terms of uh, mash bill, what that meant in terms of what we were growing. Yeah. And, and then, you know, you add on top of that a layer of complexity in that we can't grow anything we want because it's a very unique and challenging uh, microclimate for growing specifically corn. Sure. And so. But so um, you found some varieties that, that work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really leaned into the corn research there for a few months and I'll admit it kind of got out of control. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I can admit it now I've gone through enough therapy that, that I can own it. Uh, I actually, I actually, uh, I was, I, I promised I would never tell anybody this. But I'm, I'll do so it. So why not do it to our one listener? Right. So here, here, listener. <laughs> uh, I actually created a, uh, a a sort of a makeshift greenhouse environment uh, in our South Ranch shop, and there was some artificial lighting in there already. And and you know, I I had God, I don't even remember. I had over a hundred uh, just individual pots that I was growing all kinds of different corns in, just to see if I could get them to sprout, to see what they would do. Uh, to see, you know, what what kind of vigor we would be looking at, uh, and yeah, I uh, <laughs> I had a lot of time on my hands, so I spent a lot of time on that and watering every single one of those pots. 
Uh, and in retrospect, just just a stupid, silly waste of time. <laughs> it was fun, you know, and it, and it really kind of allowed me to 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 start acquiring some seed and playing around with it and and get a better understanding of, you know, in terms of heirloom corns, what was out there and, you know, what it looked like in terms of germination and, and uh, you know, from a practical perspective, uh, it, it informed a little bit of, of kind of the next step, which was actually putting some seed in the field and seeing what it would do. Uh, but yeah, it, uh, it was out of control there for a couple months. <laughs> There's worse addictions you can have on the outskirts of Reno. That's, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. Well, so you've been talking a lot about sort of how you're going to malt everything. Eventually, you're going to malt everything that goes into the distillery, including corn. Mm-hmm. I think most of us distillers would say, well, that sounds like a waste of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but last night we were talking about why you guys have that attitude of, no, it's actually worth it to malt our own corn. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, corn specifically, I mean, and I can I can take it, you know, if you look at it from 30,000 feet, I think there's efficacy and a a definite business case that you can put behind malting every grain because every grain is going to give you something different in terms of character, depth of flavor, uh flavor profiles. Uh there these are these are all going to change once you malt the grain. You don't even have to go to full modification on the grains. You can just sprout the grains and there will be notable differences in the flavor of it. Uh, but specifically in the case of corn, the thing that really surprised me about corn was that it actually offers some enzymatic potential and some diastatic power. It's not much. Is it enough that if you malt if 100% malted corn mash could you convert? So theoretically, if and I think this is dependent on on cultivar, but categorically, in theory, if you modified that corn perfectly, uh, there would be enough DP for self modification. Now that said, uh, I you know there's there's more malted corn out there that you're seeing. It's still not terribly common, um, from what I've seen. You know, you're 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 commodity grade yellow dent corn is going to malt completely differently from a bloody butcher or a green Oaxacan dent. You know, they all, they all have their own unique characteristics that are going to cause them to malt differently. I mean, it's the same as barley. You know, every barley is going to malt differently. Even the same barley uh, is going to malt differently year over year, depending on that year's crop. And so uh, in terms of malting corn, because there's so much less background and history of that specific grain being malted, uh, it's, you know, there's a little bit steeper learning curve. But on the other hand, I don't think anybody's malting corn for diastatic power. Everybody's malting corn. No. So so it really almost becomes... Um, a, a non-issue, you so know, it's, it's a flavor added. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're, you're looking for depth of flavor. You're looking for uh, complexity. You're looking for those unique flavor characteristics that only come from malted corn. Uh, another thing that I'm, I'm actually really interested in doing as well is uh, a, a crystal corn, a crystal malt corn, because uh, I've, I've heard of this before and, um, you know, this is something else that, that Johnny and I have talked about is whether or not any of these grains, once they're malted, become a permanent uh, component of any mash bill remains to be seen. But nobody's really doing it on that scale. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, to that breadth of 
sort of a, a, a malt catalog. And so if we don't do it, we'll never know. But the cool thing is, is we've got the capability to do it. We're growing the grain already. Uh, I've got both the floor maltings and, uh, you know, all in one vessels that I can play with. And so there's all kinds of flexibility and, uh, opportunity there to do it. So I'm really excited about doing it all. Let's talk about your, um, your sort of all in one malting vessels. Yeah. Cause I thought it was really interesting hearing you this week talk about, you know, I, I think we all know that the Bentley heritage project has more money than God ever created. Uh, yet you guys run into constant problems. It's, it's just constant problem solving after problem solving Mm -hmm. with these all in one vessels. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you guys really go about fixing that? Well, I think the most important component of the problem solving approach is just starting with an understanding that it's a startup and any startup, no matter how well designed and how well planned is going to have its hiccups. And so if you don't expect that going into it, then you're going to have nothing but problems. The, I, I think for me, um, well, let me back up too. We also have units number one and number two that were ever built by this company. So these are very much prototypes. Ah, okay. So um, I guess I was looking at it too of just as soon as you get something dialed in, then you have to switch to oat malt or, you know, you well, get your barley dialed in and then you're on to oat malt. Yeah, so yeah. every, every, uh, you know, dial you just turned, you're turning back to try to figure the next one out. Sure. Well, but, but that's malting, you know, even, even like, for example, I've been malting nothing but 2016 crop year Copeland barley since March. And every single batch that I've malted is different from the previous one. You know, each batch brings with it, for whatever reason, just unique challenges. Uh, For example, just when I get the recipe um, reconfigured and dialed back in, the temperature changes, the ambient temperature changes outside, which changes how the glycol chiller and the furnace interact with each other uh, and how they control the temperature in the vessel. And so it's like it's this long chain of different stimuli, I guess, that have an impact over just this long chain of all kinds of different aspects of malting, you know. And and so so once once you get things dialed in and they never change, essentially you've almost failed because <laughs> it's boring. Then you know, and 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 um the day is going to come very soon where I switch over because I'm, I'm out of 2016 Copeland and I'm actually almost looking forward to that day because then, you know, I, I get the opportunity to look at, uh, to the other grains that I have in storage and, and figure out what I want to want, what I want to malt next. So, um, are you guys working at all with maybe a school or something about breeding your own unique variety? So it sounds know, like for now you're kind of just playing around with, yeah, varieties that are out there. We're not. We're not. And the main reason for that is it takes on average 10 to 12 years from start to finish to bring a new barley to market, even even if it you're just developing it for yourself. And I to be honest with you, I don't I don't know uh offhand any privately developed barleys. Yeah. Um that are out there. But it's it's a long process. And it's difficult, and I, you know the 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 question 
that I would really ask there is why. Um, because there's some really great barleys out there and we can grow some phenomenal barley in the Carson Valley. We have been for the last three years. And, uh, what, what, what really fascinates me about barley, I went to the American Malting Barley Association's uh, Barley Improvement Conference a few weeks ago in Albuquerque. And one of the things that was sort of an ongoing topic of, of discussion was that there is sensory trials and sensory evaluation happening with barley that supports terroir. And you can take the same barley, grow it in different regions, and each barley is going to have its own unique flavor characteristics. And so from one perspective, I think you could say what I'm looking at is finding the barley that's going to yield well in the field, that's going to bring to the table nice clarity, uniformity, high percentage of plumps, uh, low disease, which we don't have a problem with anyway. And, uh, you know, we can, we can start with that barley and it'll be our own barley because we're growing it on our land with our own soil composition, which is different from anywhere else on the planet that that barley could be grown. So, you know, from that perspective, um, so you're eventually basically you'll, you'll end up kind of breeding your own just, just because you'll work it for 10 to 12 years, replanting yeah, sort of, yeah, some that's, of the same that's an interesting perspective. And, yeah. Cause it's like. If, if, if you just legally won't be able to call it your own. Right. So. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But we're, 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 I'm going to take it down from five barleys, five or six barleys. My goal is to, is to, I mean, I'd love to have two barleys that we do every sure. year. Um, and that's it. But yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Eventually that barley, uh, knowing that it's going to be different the first growing season, uh, after 10 years is going to be completely different than what you're going to see anywhere else. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's really exciting. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, what I'm trying to do right now, which I think would be really helpful for me as a maltster is to get samples in new make and do sensory evaluations on that with my malt specs. Yeah. So that I can do panels of, of, you know, however many samples and look to see what was different in those batches of malt before they even went into to the mash to see over time if I can identify any flavor trends that I can correlate back to malt specs. Because everything that I've been hearing uh, recently at, at the AMBA conference and even this week at the Craft Malt Conference is saying that, yeah, that's, that's a definite uh, reality that yeah. is, is not far off and, and should yeah, be. Yeah, I remember, it must have been two or three years ago, I think it was ACSA conference in Nashville. The, um, one of the malting, malt handling guys brought in a, a Baird's malter, and he had in his little pack uh, four samples of Bricklotti new make, and they were experimenting with terroir. So it was the same variety, but four different areas of Scotland. And man, was that different. Oh, that yeah. was crazy. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's common, but like everything, it's 10 to 12 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the interesting thing too, uh, like for example, the, the 2016 Copeland that I'm malting right now, what I found out fairly early on when I started malting, um, when I started malting this grain, was that protein content was varying throughout the batch. And I didn't understand why. What I found out was we had grown the same source seed in three different parts of the valley. 
And then after it was harvested, it was all put into the same silo. And so it's really interesting that in a very short distance, you can have minor changes in climate, in water runoff, in soil content, and those minor changes that close together in proximity to each other can result in such vast differences in the barley that's produced. And so, uh, yeah, that definitely supports the, the, the concept of terroir with barley. And, uh, and apparently, we've got amazing soil for growing barley because the new make whiskey that's, that's coming off the stills is delicious. So I wouldn't think that barley and corn grow well in the same climate. They do. Um, and actually, well, in some places they do. <laughs> uh, for, so for us, what we found is we're very limited in the corns that we can grow, but the corns that we can grow, if we're careful about it and precise with how we're growing them and harvesting them, we can do them. And, and they're gorgeous. Uh, we, we can grow some beautiful corn. We can't grow long season corns. Mm-hmm. We can't grow uh, southern strain corns. And that presents a lot of challenges because that kind of limits what we can do. But it's also going to make you very unique besides everything else in your eventual bourbon. True. It does. Well, and it also helps in terms of, of crop selection because if you can, if you can take three quarters of the list out of consideration just based on days to maturity, that really shortens the time it takes to narrow down to a few to test. So that's been helpful. Uh, the, the, the challenge that you have to really watch out for because in a lot of climates, they actually do grow corn and barley in the same place. Uh, and actually on the same farms, you can't, you can't grow barley after you grow corn. Yeah, I learned that today. Oh, <laughs> I man. sat in a couple of lectures where that was a big point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you're out there and you want to grow malting barley, do not do it in a field that you've grown corn in. Just don't. Is it ever grown corn in or just most recently grown corn? Recently, in? definitely. I don't know how long it takes, but I know corn stock, especially if, if you're a no-tillage uh, farm, that stuff can stay in the soil for decades. And that's the problem is that, that that carries with it the precursors that can lead to fusarium and, and all kinds of nasty stuff in, in the barley. Uh, best thing you can do honestly is do uh, rotational crops with, with peas or legumes uh, or, or um, ground cover. Um, Cause it's great for the soil and there is no, um, you know, that same precursor doesn't exist. So, uh, that's, that's, I think, so what what's your, what's your rotating crop? Well, we've been, um, are there going to be Bentley peas? That's something I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm actually bringing that to the table as a, as a possibility. Um, and that's the thing with as much livestock as we have out yeah. in our neck of the woods, not difficult to find people to buy peas. We've grown peas there before. As a matter of fact, that was the rotation, rotational crop in, in one of our rye fields. And there's a bunch of volunteer pea that I'm still cleaning out of rye. <laughs> uh, it's it's. I don't think that's qualifies as a whiskey anymore. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> How many peas are you allowed in your mash before it's too much? <laughs> I mean, luckily, luckily, you know, the peas are so huge and the rye is so small. It's really easy to scalp it off, you know, in the cleaning process. But yeah, there's a lot of pea content in, in our rye. Um, wait. 
There's a lot of pee content <laughs> in the rye before I clean it off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's our header right there. Right? Oh, great. <laughs> um, all right. So let's, let's get off Bentley specific. I feel like we already have, but sure. let's, let's talk about the actual conference. You've been here all week. What's something you learned? Oh, wow. That, that is important to distillers. This conference is very focused on craft malting and then beer as an offshoot. And it, it lets distillers kind of fend for ourselves in terms of interpreting the data. But, yeah. Um, but you're looking at it sitting through the class as a you know distilling perspective. So, Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I've learned a lot of really good practical uh, everyday information that's actually going to... Uh, inform some changes that I'm going to make as soon as I get back uh, just to make me more efficient and uh, hopefully kind of shorten my, my malting process down a little bit. Uh, in terms of something that I learned that's important for distillers, I think, you know, it goes back to the notion of really paying attention to what you're starting with in terms of your, your raw material and, and your malt. I think the, the 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 mindset is changing and people are paying more attention to where their ingredients are coming from, which is why the craft malting uh, industry is is starting to grow because that is more important. People want something local. People want something unique. They want something special. And the great thing about going to a craft maltster is that you, uh, as a distiller or as the customer, have a direct impact over what product you get. And you can actually even help design that product, which is something that you're not going to get when you go to, you know, one of the big guys. Um, the other thing is, you know, flavor is important. And and that's something that as I've spent more time with Bentley and talked with Johnny more, uh, that has really surprised me because... You know, going into it, and I don't think I'm alone in this. I think I think that the average person, or or even someone who's got a little bit more insight into distilling, um, would just assume that the only thing that matters is extract. You know, and how what what what's your potential spirit yield? Well, extract and and how they kilned it, maybe not as much variety and sure, but but I think. I think for me, what I really learned is uh, is that flavor is important, and it's it's a real thing, even in the new make. I mean, it, it's not you're not just making a neutral spirit. You know, you're not making something that has no flavor, and what you're starting with really is important, and it's the most critical part of that entire equation. Because if you start with something that tastes like crap or that's poorly made, it's not going to turn into anything delicious at the end of it, you know, I mean, you can't, it's, you know, crap in crap out. And so uh, I think, I think for me, uh, I, I, again, I've been getting a better understanding of that as I've spent more time with Bentley and talking with Johnny, but this week really drove it home how important it, it, it is and that it should definitely be a consideration and a factor in making the decision in, in what grain you start with. Do you think, so just your general, you know, new to the scene craft distiller wants to make a single malt. If he orders just from any general, like, Oh, I'm just going to use two row, you know, the EC problem is kind of hidden because craft malting has been on brewers minds and mm-hmm. malters minds and not really on the distillers minds. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and since America sort of self-regulated, it's not, or is in the process of self-regulating process. Uh, yeah, it's still that whole discussion. How how dangerous do you think it's going to be in the long run? Well, if we, if we don't do something about it now. So there, I think, I think there are a couple schools of thought on that. First of all, uh, I do think it's going to be more of a topic of conversation and it's, it's a growing topic of conversation. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what what that process actually looks like uh, in terms of distilling and and what glycosidic nitrile and ethyl carbamate actually does and and yeah, I guess you had a really good short description of that yesterday. You wanna? Well, yeah. So so there. Going back to the 80s, I believe, in Scotland, that's where ethyl carbamate and glycosidic nitrile were first really identified and separated out as being uh, just nasty stuff in, in, in the whiskey and in the distillate. And so uh, between then and now, all glycosidic nitrile-producing barleys have been uh, banned in the UK. They won't even look at any cultivars that are producers of it. You know? Right. So it's a, it's a genetic, yeah, it's a genetic, uh, yeah. So, trait trait in certain barley varieties that yeah. can turn into yes. ethyl carbonate when reacted with copper. When reacting with copper. Now, as we've looked at it more, what we found is if you've got copper in, in the ascending, um, what would you call it? Oh, oh, in your vapor path, if you're if yeah, the yeah. copper, in the, in if the, the copper is yeah. before in the beginning, you yeah, start in the condensing part. down. So if it's on the ascending um, part of, of distillation on the ascending side, um, that's fine because it's it's it condenses it'll and then, condense out. But if you've got copper on the descending end, that's when it becomes a reagent, and then it it precipitates down into your distillate, and that's the real problem. Is that the old research uh, going back like 25 years says, oh, yeah, ethyl carbamate or glycosidic nitrile in, in the presence of copper, it, it is, it's a good thing because the copper removes it. Well, it does, but only on the ascending side of the equation. On the descending side, that's where it comes back. And so in terms of how big of a problem that is, the jury's really still out uh, because... Yeah, there's guys who say, well, alcohol is poisonous. Well, You'll yeah. Kill yourself long before. Yeah, from alcohol. I mean, and it's and it's kind of like um, you know sulfites in wine. You, you you can you know there's people that are like oh sulfites are just give me a headache. I can't drink it. It's so bad for you. The problem is is you can take a bottle of wine that's the highest sulfite content on the planet, drink the entire bottle, and you're still not going to get anywhere near the amount as if you ate a dried apricot. Just one. Just one. <laughs> yeah, a dried apricot has more sulfites in it than an entire bottle of of high sulfite wine. You heard it here, listener. Matt is suggesting you drink bottles of wine <laughs> over dried apricots. <laughs> Not what I said. Uh, but but the, it really, you know, it's like California is a good example. Uh, they've got warning labels on, like I don't know, shoelaces. Sure. You know, they've got warning because everything's carcinogenic, and it really comes down to just being well-informed on what is in the product and how dangerous it really is for you. I don't, to my knowledge, I don't know that anybody's ever died or contracted cancer from drinking single malt whiskey that is high in ethyl carbamate. Uh, I don't know, you know, that may not be the case, but to my knowledge, 
Uh, that's be a hard happened. linear line to prove. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, you know, I think I think probably well, where we're going to wind up um, in in the industry as American single malt as a category becomes more prevalent and more popular, uh, and as we all know, that conversation is increasing and expanding. Uh, it'll probably come down to a warning label. Uh, it'll probably put more onus on. Uh, the producers of the spirit to make sure that they're responsibly making their 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 product, and and I very much doubt that that warning label would take into account whether or not your copper is ascending or descending in the right. still. <laughs> yeah, it's like, is it there? Or isn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah. but but I, I, I it'll be interesting to see what happens with that in the next couple of years because i mean even since last year when we were here and we first learned about it at the conference there's been a lot more research done and yeah. we're we're getting a lot more context and perspective on the problem uh specific to what we're doing in in the single malt world and so if that's happened in this short year where i mean essentially the category is still in its infancy I think it's just going to explode from here. I mean, I think something will be done about it. I don't know if it's going to go as far as they did in Scotland as to ban glycosidic nitrile producing barley cultivars because that theoretically could wipe out <laughs> the, the 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 barley um, the barley breeding. Um, well, I mean, yes, but I thought it was really interesting today. We sat through a, a lecture by a Chris Moulton guy, and he had one slide talking about how IBD and the barley breeders and the distillers and the brewers and everyone work together to talk about what varieties they want. Now his side made it seem that the distillers with their, you know, super powerful scotch industry, uh, were steering that a little bit more than the brewers were able to. And I think in America it's probably the other way around, but we'll see. I mean, yeah, I guess my, my problem comes from, Distiller's malt in America to me seems usually a lower tier because it's mostly used for the big bourbon producers. It's six row. It's just high DP, right? Right. That's how it's always been. American single malt's just starting to come around and try to change that. But if we don't learn quick about how to handle ECs properly, Mm -hmm. we're going to get ourselves in some trouble. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting point because I think I think the the single malt uh, category is actually completely changing the conversation, not only on the distilling side, but also on the malting side. Yeah. Because distiller's malt is not distiller's malt anymore. Now, whereas it used to be, you either had brewer's malt or distiller's malt. Now it's like, you've got either brewer's malt or, uh, you've got diastatic malt, which is used in small proportions because of its high enzyme package, or you've got single malt malt, which is essentially basically it's the same thing as brewer's malt. <laughs> don't don't tell the listener. <laughs> um, but but again, you know, it all comes back to there being different factors that need to play a role as a distiller in why you're choosing which barley's end, and uh, and then pulling that through in your story and making the most of it. And I, you know, it's it's multifaceted. It's it's there's a pu- public safety. Uh, approach, you know, you're looking out for your consumers by not using a high glycosidic nitrile barley. 
Whether or not that's going to hurt anybody if you if you don't remains to be seen. But it's still a good story to tell. It's like we care about our consumers, so we're using Odyssey, which is a non-producer, or we're using Genie, which is a non-producer. Uh, but then, you know, taking that even further and saying we're also looking at flavor. We're looking at all of the things that nobody ever thought about when talking about distiller's malt, even as recently as five years ago. Yeah. And so the category is changing a lot of things, again, both on the distiller side and the malting side. And it's, it's a really exciting time to be a maltster, uh, especially one that's, that's primarily supplying a distillery. And a Are you guys, do you guys have any plans to sell out of, out of house, I guess, any malt? Yeah. Yeah. Actually. At some um, point you'll probably be using everything, but mm-hmm. until you reach that production point. Yeah. It's definitely going to help, uh, once we start floor malting. Yeah. Um, Right now, our, our output is about six tons per week, and we're going to up that. We're going to more than double that when we start floor malting. So that'll be nice. Uh, now, but once, are you shoveling yourself? <laughs> I will be one who's of Who's raking? <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll be one of the guys with the shovels. Uh, and I'm actually looking at some automation for that as well uh, so that it's not so painful. You're, you're not excited for your monkey shoulder, you're saying? No, not in the slightest. <laughs> We've got the shovels there, but I'm really hoping they're worst case scenario, I mean, just in case type of thing. But, you know, we're, we're that's another thing that I've been doing some research on while I'm here this week is, you know, I know there are other malt houses out there that have floor maltings that are uh, turning them with machines. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to get in on that game pretty quickly. Yeah. So. <laughs> Surprise, surprise. I know. Yeah, well, because we're gonna have we're gonna have ten tons on the floor at a time. And that should be easy at three in the morning. Well no, we'll we'll have we're gonna have five tons on the floor at any time. I got it. <laughs> so yeah, it'll it'll be ten tons in, in process. So yeah, cut that last bit out. Um, we'll have ten tons in process on the floor at any given time. We've got a two and a half ton steep. We'll have two on the floor. And then, uh, so one in the steep, two on the floor, one in the kiln, and then just kind of cycle it through that way nonstop. So, yeah, that's that's going to be a lot of uh, nonstop turning and babysitting that grain. So anything that we can possibly automate, I want to do as quickly as I can. You saw the uh, German snowplows today, right? That's yeah. how they were. That's how one of the big monsters turns their floor malt. Is they have these? They look like sort of mini snowmobiles with a, a shovel on the front. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're just driving them sweet. around. Those are pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah, and I see. I saw also uh, over in France, they actually use rototillers. Oh yeah, they just use electric rototillers to turn their malt. So I've got an electric snowblower with a VFD on it. So I'm hoping that does the trick. I'm really hoping that does the trick. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, you just have a badass, you know, driveway. (laughs) Yeah, very clean driveway. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So usually we like to do. Final thoughts. I will edit in one of our other co-hosts does this big gnarly grunt um, before final final thoughts. It's usually when he's tired of the conversation. Yeah. But (laughs) it's generally sort of either a sum up of the conversation or just kind of whatever you want to say last. So I will start by my favorite thing that I learned today was just about two hours ago. There is... A barley disease, I assume it goes on other grains too, but a growing disease called loose smut. It apparently doesn't do anything. I just thought the name was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that's my final thought. <laughs> Man, I was going to go deep on it. <laughs> oh no, you're more than welcome to. <laughs> you know, I'd say, I'd say my final thought would be in kind of looking back over everything that I've learned and been a part of over the course of this past week is that malt is really important and it's really, I think, been undersold in terms of what its true potential is in terms of quality and complexity. And, um, and I, it's nice to see that that's starting to change. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that so many people came to this craft malt conference. It's great to see so many people from, from different parts of the supply chain. You know, we've got farmers here, we've got maltsters here, we've got folks from all over the world who want to, uh, who want to be a part of it because we all have kind of a shared vision that we're, that we're experiencing from different perspectives and in different ways. And I think it all comes back to the same thing, which is malt is important and good malt is really important. And it has loose smut. If you're lucky. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Matt. That was, that was wonderful. We're, uh, we're going to go get drunk. Let's do it. That's the end of that. Up your butt sideways. (laughs) 